From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and we're going to do a weird show this time. This is going to be the kind of episode that I get the feeling a lot of people wish I would do more often, and I get it. But you know, I, I have to be me, and me is what one writer a few years ago nailed as a, a magpie. I think I am a magpie. I want to grab stuff and, and show it to you. And where I'm usually doing this grabbing around isn't the latest headlines. At heart, what I am is a nerdy, armchair, academic, boring kind of person. But you know, these are special times for reasons I do not need to explain. And you know, in my other life, I do read the news. And for this episode, partly upon the request of others and partly because I really feel it as a duty, I think I'll share with you some of my feelings about you know, real things. So this time, no Estonian, etc. Estonian is quite real, but we need to do things that are less fun. I want to share with you my opinions about some language-related issues that I think a lot of us are thinking about these days. So let's start with defund. Defund the police, a lot of protests are saying these days. And a lot of people don't like the way that word is being used because you would think that defund means that you're supposed to take all money away from the police and so there isn't supposed to be a police force. You just deprive the police force of money and then we have to take some other pathway. Defund. Now, if that's not what most people mean when they say defund the police, and it isn't, most people when they say that mean that the police should get less money, the police forces should be shrunken, that the police should be responsible for fewer things within a society. So less money, not no money at all. If that's what people mean, then isn't it imprecise to say defund the police? Isn't it a problem that you're using language in a way that impedes efficient communication rather than fostering it? Shouldn't we be using words according to what they really mean? Well, in this case, I think we need to be a little more subtle about the matter. The truth is that prefix D is not always absolute. It can also be what a linguist might call scalar. And so, for example, if you dethrone somebody, then you are pulling their butt off of the throne. Down they go to the ground. And so that's it. To dethrone means to leave the person not on the throne. It's either A or B. Desegregate. The idea is not to leave a bit of segregation. Desegregation is supposed to be about mixing everybody together. No more segregation. But there are other uses of D. So, for example, to de-escalate. If you think about it, when you say de-escalate, what you imagine is pulling the thermometer reading down somewhat, maybe a lot. You're pulling it down, but when you say de-escalate, you don't necessarily mean that you're extinguishing the whole business. You don't necessarily mean that the thermometer is going to go to zero. You probably don't expect it. It's a matter of degree, pulling something closer down to the middle. Or if you decompress, does that mean that you are going to wind up maximally uncompressed? Probably not. Decompress means... <laughs> And then somewhere in the middle, it's scalar. It's a continuum. And so defund can mean that too. As in, it's not hard to imagine it meaning that. To defund could be taken to mean not to completely deprive somebody or something of funds, but to give less funds to it. 
To the extent that that may not have been what most of us were thinking last week, the truth is that we use language creatively all the time, and that is, yes, me in another way saying language is always changing. And so, for example, defund and wrapping our heads around maybe a kind of definition two sense of what it means. Think about relatable. You talk about someone or something being relatable. Nobody was using relatable that way before about 1965. The first time we see relatable used that way is in education school speak, where there's some article that says that girls find teachers more relatable. But nobody was using the word that way before. Herbert Hoover, I don't know why I'm thinking of him, but let's use him. Herbert Hoover would not have used relatable in that way. He would have found it peculiar. And then it's really in the 80s that this relatable term jumps into people on TV, television hosts start using it this way. And frankly, I think that's when a lot of us would remember it being used. 65 feels early. I'm getting this from my friend and colleague, Ben Zimmer. He actually did a piece on relatable. And he did this piece, which you can look up, in 2010. And it's interesting because that is when I first heard relatable. A student in one of my classes at Columbia used it that way, and I knew from context what he meant, but I thought I never heard relatable used that way, and it does seem to have taken off in a special way then. But the point is, John F. Kennedy probably wouldn't have said that somebody is relatable. We do say that a person is relatable. That's a creative use of the verb to relate. Well, defund can move in the same way, and let's face it, It is. Not to mention that you have to think about the difference between a slogan and a scientific paper. So defund the police. It at least makes you imagine there being no police. And there is some use in that. Now, I think most of us, upon imagining there being no police at all, kind of cringe. That seems too extreme. There are people who would like it that way, but it's an extreme viewpoint. Nevertheless, to imagine it, and then bounce back into some middle ground, is not the worst thing in the world. And once again, it's about slogan versus scientific communication anyway. So for example, Black Lives Matter. It's common for some people to say, no, all lives matter. They're missing the point. Black Lives Matter doesn't mean Black Lives Matter more. It means Black Lives Matter too. Black Lives Matter as well. However, the slogan assumes that you know that and assumes that you know that because what kind of slogan would Black Lives Matter as well be? Or even Black Lives Matter too. The two kind of hangs. It's not a slogan. It's a piece of communication. And the two things overlap considerably, but not completely. Black Lives Matter. Three parts. And it's assumed that everyone knows that nobody would be so crazy or self-centered as to say that Black Lives Matter more. Why would anybody mean that? Of course, it's Black Lives Matter too, but you don't say it. Imagine the acronym. You know, BLM is one thing. BLMT sounds like a sandwich. It just doesn't work. And in the same way, imagine now saying instead of defund the police, less money for the cops. That's not a slogan. That really doesn't work very well at all. There are times when to be perfectly precise is to only talk to yourself. 
Sometimes you have to punch it up. And I think that that's what's going on with defund. It's a different kind of meaning. The language is always changing. And here it's changing not in a kind of random way that nobody cares about, such as the word relatable coming to be used, but it's, you know, in a heated context. Nevertheless, this is how language always changes. The Linguistics Research Center. What in the world? Is that, you know, talk about slogans. The Linguistics Research Center is a wonderful outfit at the University of Texas at Austin that studies ancient languages and puts information about them online in accessible fashion. If you want to hear Old English spoken and not me and this thing that I, but Old English actually spoken more or less the way it was to the closest that we can approximate, you can hear that on the Linguistics Research Center site. There are all sorts of things on this site such that 30,000 people use it every month from 136 countries. And wouldn't you know that the suits down there are trying to take away its funding. They're trying to defund it completely. And that would mean that there's no linguistics research center. Now, the last time I did a pitch for this on this show, I was pleased to find that it actually did earn the LRC $2,000. So, so I just want to say again, please... If you have some extra money, and you know maybe you don't, but if you have some extra money, after you've finished signing up for Slate Plus here, give some money to the Linguistics Research Center. And yes, it's about money. I am openly saying, please give them some money because the suits down there don't want to do it. And in the meantime, there's so much on the site. Like, for example, Hittite. Hittites, this ancient language. Why do you care about Hittite? Well, for one thing, nobody knew anything about it until about 25 minutes ago, actually 100 years ago, when tablets were dug up in what is now Turkey, and suddenly there was this whole new Indo-European language, Hittite. All of a sudden, people knew about it. Old Irish, who cares? You care, because it's one of the most magnificently irregular languages ever recorded. Can't believe anybody spoke it. Tocharian, what the hell is that? Well, there are mummies of people six foot six and white as butter in what is now China, and we can pretty much figure out they spoke a now-dead Indo-European language called Tocharian. You want to know more? Go to the LRC and give them your money. Go to Facebook's UTLRC and please pitch in. The Associated Press and now the New York Times have decided to capitalize black when referring to people. What do I think of that? People have been asking. You know what? I like it. I have frankly spent my life teaching myself not to capitalize black. It feels perfectly right to me because the people we refer to as black certainly are not black in the sense of the color. Just think about how absurd that looks when you try to color in a black person that color with crayons, or you imagine how black people were often drawn in the past. And we're not black, we're brown. And so if we're going to keep that term, and language is about conventions, you can't make language make perfect sense, you know, just like with defund. And so the term is going to stick around. If so, then if we're talking about black people, then it should be treated as a proper noun. It should be treated as describing a phenomenon, quote unquote, a thing. And therefore, there should be the capital B. It means that black is not the color, that's with a lowercase b, but black refers to a set of people who are thought of as a set for reasons other than what 
The word actually means in its core definition. You can also say that it refers to a set of historical experiences, not to mention present day experiences, depending on your preferences with these things. And so, yeah, black should be capitalized, I think. It will free me up to do something I've always felt would be natural. I have spent my life with a patch in my mental functioning where when I'm writing black, I think lowercase b, although I feel like I'm lowercasing people, you know, lowercasing myself. It should be uppercase. Now, doesn't that mean that white should be capitalized as well? And yes, it does because, all right, some of you are already angry. Hold on. Hear me out. It does, because white is just as arbitrary as black when we talk about these things. Try talking about it with your kids as I am now. The white people, nobody's white. Or if they are, there's something terribly wrong. They're more like pink, and it's not that. With Crayola, you gradually learn that to color a white person in, the closest thing you might get to it is peach. And then, what is a white person? Hispanic people are white Israelis or... What, what is it? You know, what what is white? It's a rather arbitrary concept. Let's not even get into why whites are called Caucasian, and you've got these Caucasus mountains. And so, white is a thing. It is a historical set of experiences, a historical set of actions. It is a modern set of experiences. And so, it should be capitalized as well. In an ideal world, we would now be capitalizing B for black and W for white, but we can't. Unfortunately, we can't because real life has intervened. The white nationalists have gotten a handle on white, and they already capitalize white, and so it's capital W-H-I-T-E, the idea being to enshrine whiteness as something separate and, in their sense, something preferable to a great many other things, including black. Now, I think most of us who are not white nationalists find that usage rather unsavory. I think that a critical mass of us would rather not do what they do. I hope that's not too politicized for me to say. And so, since they use it that way, no, I don't think we can do that. It's inconvenient because, you know, they are a an arbitrary happenstance of history, just as everything is, and they've started to do something, and so now the rest of us can't do it because they happen to get there first. But it would make me uncomfortable to start capitalizing white. You know, there's a little there's a little smell of the Confederate flag about it. So for that reason, I would say no, although deep in my bones, I would like it to be tidy. And if, you know, the white nationalists cease to exist and 50 years went by, then I, because I don't intend to die like the rest of you seem to think you're going to, I'm going to be here. And I would be saying, okay, it's time to capitalize white to make everything tidy. I like tidy, but we can't have tidy now. But you know, one thing I like about this focus on the term black and capitalizing it with a B is that I hope this will make people use black more because here's something, if this is going to be a very special episode where everything is not happy in the valley. I don't like African-American. I've never liked it. It doesn't offend me, but I use black and black American in print. I have never liked that. I remember when it came in, 1989, 1990, and I thought, it's clever, I get it, but it never felt right to me. And it's for reasons that, you know, opinions will differ on. 
Africa was too long ago, as far as I'm concerned. It was there. I'm quite aware of it. My studies of Creole languages, etc. But to me, say you're Italian-American, grandpa speaks Italian. African-American, when we're talking about slavery ending in the mid-19th century, and you're at the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st, for me, it's just, it's too far away. I don't feel like I am a person who is both African and American in any significant way. And some people might say, well, I'm just so bourgeois and so peculiar that we're not really talking about me. But even if we're going to talk about what many people would refer to, and you all know what I mean, as real black people, still, Africa? Not really. Black people are certainly not white, but black people are, to me, fundamentally American. And this is not me striking some corny note that we all have to be the same. We are not the same. But the African heritage, to me, has always seemed to be too far away to lend itself gracefully to the term African-American. And then, especially since about 1990, a great many immigrants from actual Africa have come here. And so you have a person who was raised by Ghanaian parents who speak Chui in the house. That's an African-American, just like they're Italian-Americans and Polish-Americans. And to me, the idea that that's an African-American, and then also the native-born black American person from Cleveland is the same thing. It just doesn't feel natural to me. And then it gets really confusing when you have white South Africans who sincerely think of themselves as African-American or their children, and they're told that the term doesn't apply to them. It just, it all just gets too messy. And, you know, I like tidy just as much as anyone else. It's a matter of where you draw the line. And, you know, actually something else about African-American is that I always feel like to say that makes it seem as if my relatives here and what they did, say, in the late 19th century and on, wasn't as interesting. Somehow I have to signal that my roots trace to Senegal, which apparently, based on the cheek swab, they do. Great. But what about the people who were here? My great aunt T.I., I remember at 92 years old, we were at the late great North Philadelphia train station, and it had a big staircase, and she was about to miss her train. She ran up that staircase almost faster than I could have when I was 13. She didn't know anything about Senegal. She was a great lady. I still have pictures of her. That, to me, is my history. So, in a way, I'm George Jefferson. You know, I hate to admit this, but one thing I've been doing during COVID is, well, I, I've been reading War and Peace, so I've been doing something kind of sophisticated, but I've also been re-watching all of the Jeffersons. This is from one episode of the Jeffersons, and this is something George says about his African heritage. What a fascinating carving. Oh, it's a Baal figure. In Africa, it's supposed to be a guardian spirit. Magnificent. An important part of the black heritage. Don't you find that interesting, Mr. Jefferson? No, I don't. I ain't interested in no heritage of mine past 126th Street. <laughs> really? Now, of course, that's a little brash, but there's a little of me in that. I'm more interested in Aunt T.I. than in what went on before. That's just me, of course. You know something about the Jeffersons? 
Isabel Sanford was over 20 years older than Sherman Hemsley. This is something that you would never quite guess because black don't crack and between that and a lot of makeup, she looked like she was in her mid-40s on the show and Hemsley was balding and so he looked older than he was. But he was 30-something, she was pushing 60 and yet they looked so much like a couple. I've always found that really weird. He probably, when he met her, probably called her Miss Sanford. They were not even of the same generation, and yet they played that couple so convincingly for 11 seasons. In any case, it's time for a song, and no, it's not going to be the Jefferson's theme song, because you know most of us of a certain age can play that in our heads in such detail that I don't need to play it. But listen to this theme song from the same era. This is the Good Times theme song. And you know, this is by, the lyrics are by Alan and Marilyn Bergman, and the music is Dave Grusin. These are (laughs) not black people. They wrote various lovely, corny songs that most of us remember from the 80s and 90s. They also wrote the theme song to Good Times. So listen to it, and then we're going to talk about something. ever noticed that you don't understand a lot of the words? I saw every episode of Good Times and there are things I never understood. There's a subtitled version online now. So for example, Mike, could you please play um, Anytime You Meet a Friend? For my whole childhood, I thought that was Anytime You're Feeling Free In. And I thought, okay, so people are feeling free. And then this. Mike, play the um, Hanging In and Jiving. I always thought until I called this up for this episode, I always thought it was handing in a charter, hanging in and jiving, handing in a charter. And I thought, well, okay, so that's political activism. You're handing in a charter that's (laughs) demanding something that actually doesn't make any sense. Who hands in a charter? But I always thought that that's what the words were. People keep asking me about this one. BIPOC. B-I-P-O-C. That has really jumped out, especially over the past just few months. It's by... I'm making the mistake. Mike, keep it in. (laughs) They'll understand why I just said that. Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. BIPOC. That's a new acronym for people who aren't white. It's probably with us to stay, at least for a while. You know, I don't like it frankly. I I understand that we need acronyms for that concept, but that one, if you ask me, and my judgment is not going to change anything, I don't particularly like it. I like that it uses black, so it is an African-American indigenous and people of color, which would be IPOC or something like that. But BIPOC, I don't know, there, there are problems with it. One is indigenous is a useful gesture, but there are indigenous 
Native American people who don't like being lumped together under that one term. And I'm not sure what you do about it, but it really is a very broad brush to just have this I. Like, there's a new book I highly recommend when I'm not suffering through war, when I'm not enjoying war and peace. The other book that I'm reading right now is called God's Shadow. It's by Alan Mikhail. And it's about how the Ottoman Empire really determined early modern and modern history in a way that we tend to miss because our histories are focused on the Roman Empire and the Byzantines, etc. Fascinating book. I can't put it down. It is the literary equivalent of potato chips. This book deserves to be a bestseller. One nice thing that it does, though, is it has a map of the world at a certain time. And it's the only book like this where I've seen this done. Where Native Americans are in North and South America, he has various groups noted. It doesn't just say indigenous. It doesn't just say Native American. It doesn't say Indian. But the major groups like Cree, Navajo, Tupi, all of those are put on the map. The idea being that these people didn't see themselves as the same. So indigenous is not an insult or anything like that. But to me, it it's not ideal. And then, you know, POC, people of color, that's an awful lot of people. That's an awful lot of experiences. So POCs are Latinos and Asians. And then what's a Latino and what's an Asian? And all of them are POCs. And apparently POCs are something different from the bees. So now black people aren't people of color. Just, it just stirs up so much. And as I say, language is never precise. But to me, BIPOC somehow goes too far on the other side of the line. I won't be using it, therefore. Many other people will. That's great. But I, I just can't quite wrap my head around it. And then, in pronunciation, as you already saw, it sounds like it's referring to bisexuals, which it isn't, is the problem. And so I you know, opened up this segment saying, BIPOC, bisexual people of color, that's what it always seems like it's referring to. Now, you might want to have an acronym for people of color who happen to be bisexual, but you probably wouldn't. The mistake seems to always be hovering. People are always going to ask, you know, bisexual what? And then they have to be corrected. Well, defund is a little messy, and I say that's okay, but BIPOC just seems to be extremely messy in that way. And this is totally arbitrary. This is like somebody having a fondness for peach jello over the other flavors. I don't know who that would be. But to me, a BIPOC, it sounds like something from finance. It sounds like one of those collateralized debt obligations that got us in trouble back in 2008. It's just now they're not doing collateralized debt obligations. Now they're doing BIPOCs. I don't know. All of this is just me. But that is a term which I would not have as a pet in my home. I don't know why I put it that way. But it's just it doesn't quite work for me. In any case, because I'm throwing everything but the kitchen sink into this episode, let's have a, a back shift because I always enjoy these. Let's say you're watching Batman, the Batman. You're watching Batman. Well, here are people in 1966, 67, 68, 69 speaking American English. Now and then somebody says something that's a little weird. Often it's because of the bat shift. Uh, it's because <laughs> the bat shift. <laughs> Keep it, Mike. It's because of the of the bat shift. And so, for example, in one episode, it's the one where Cliff Robertson plays a cowboy named Shame. For some reason, the comedian, old-time comedian Jack Carter, makes this unbilled appearance as a disc jockey. But listen to how he says DJ. Hey, there is one other cat who knows more about where the automotive action is than the top-rated DJ in GC town. Who's that, Mr. Harry? 
Laughing Leo, the used car and truck magnet over on Surf Avenue and 20th Street. Thank you. Keep punching, fellas. It's a DJ. He's not mispronouncing. It's because that word was not quite as established yet. He was oldish. And so it's a DJ. Very interesting. Yeah, it's time, but this is important. The virus has hit the media hard. Slate is the media. And there's no danger, but we have some problems. And really, we could use some money, just like the Linguistics Research Center could. Slate could use some in the form of you all signing up, if you haven't already, for Slate Plus. For a nominal fee, what you get with Slate Plus, talk about old sitcoms like the Jeffersons, is you get a tag. You get that little bit before the ending credits, except this would be after my ending credits, where I just give you three, four, or five minutes of extra stuff. Sometimes it has to do with what the episode was about, just as often it's just something that happened to be on my mind at the time. But you get extra stuff. Sometimes there is more music. And you don't have to listen to commercials. If you have Slate Plus, you get more show and no ads. And it's not only for my show, but for all of Slate's podcasts, we could really use a little bit of extra help. And so, for example, this time, the Slate Plus episode is going to be all about butts. (laughs) For some reason, it is more often than you might think. All about butts and grammar. And you've got to pay that nominal fee to find out what that means. And frankly, the Slate Plus this week is funny. And there is a very, very funny song. But you can't know what it is unless you sign up for Slate Plus today. Karen. This Karen thing. This archetype. It's this middle-aged woman of whiteness who keeps calling for the manager and she has a certain haircut. I don't know why, but for me, Karen is in the Hamptons. I guess that's just my geography, but Karen is this certain kind of person. Overlaps somewhat with Karen Walker of Will and Grace. I can't help thinking that has something to do with the name, but Karen is this person who's now being referred to as somebody who not only has a silly haircut, but just doesn't get it. People are asking me, how do you feel about the Karen term? And I'm not sure how I feel about it, because there are a whole lot of other things I've been thinking about. But it is an equivalent of another archetype that's gotten around for much longer, which is Becky. Many black people talk about a certain character, Becky, and that refers to a white woman, probably upper middle class or above, who just doesn't understand the race thing, doesn't understand what we now refer to as her white privilege and is always saying these rather clueless things. Becky is not supposed to be a racist per se, but she just doesn't get it. She's in her own little white frame of mind. That's Becky. And people have been referring to Becky for a while. Becky is usually pretty young, though. I imagine Becky as being 20 or 25. Karen is kind of an older Becky. So the idea is there's this sort of in-group defense. Becky is generally referred to with a kind of knowing smile. But what's interesting is that Karen is not referred to with a knowing smile. Karen is reviled. You know, we really don't like Karen. And that's partly because of the current mood in the country, because of protests over the murder of George Floyd and the huge reckoning that we've been having on race and all the controversies that surround it. So Karen is not aware of her white privilege, and it's not funny. These days, we don't think of that as a a quirk. We don't think of that as an idiosyncrasy. It's a problem. And so Karen is a sort of older and despised 
Becky. And you might say, I think some people who are asking me about Karen are waiting for me to say that it's dehumanizing to refer to these women as Karen. And yeah, it is. I had a a roommate when I was in college. I'm going to call him Paul. And when I was in college, there was one year... This was Simon's Rock, you know, God bless Simon's Rock of Bard. There was one year, though, way, way back, early in the Reagan administration, where they admitted more relatively wealthy kids than they usually would because they were cash-strapped. And so the class, that second year that I was there, had what we then called a preppier stripe than any Simon's Rock class had ever had before. That didn't continue, but it was particularly that year. Paul was anything but a preppy, and he thought all of these preppy freshmen were kind of ridiculous. One of them happened to be named Chris Romano. Another one happened to be named Charlie Durr. Well, Paul decided that he was going to refer to all of the men of the new class as (laughs) Charlie Romano. And he did. It just became this in-joke among all of us that, that all of these new guys were named Charlie Romano. Paul talked about how he had been at the soda machine and that somebody walked up to him, one of these new guys, and wanted to know if he had an extra quarter. And Paul said, sorry, Charlie, I'm fresh out. And the person didn't say anything because apparently the person really was named Charlie. That was dehumanizing. Those guys did not deserve that. I actually still know Charlie Durr. He was nothing like this archetype that Paul had come up with. And so, yeah, these things can be cruel. On that episode of the Jeffersons that we heard a clip from, at another point in it, George and his mother talk about how one of their ancestors was a Pullman porter. Here. If George weren't so shy, he could tell about some very distinguished people in our family. Now, Mama. Like his great uncle Daniel. Oh, he was big in railroading. Mama, he was a Pullman porter. He was the head porter. I don't want to hear no more about this ancestor and family pride. Pride is what you are feeling now. Who cares about what's dead and gone? Now, what's interesting is what that Pullman porter would have endured in terms of not only how he was spoken of, but spoken to. It was an ordinary thing for ordinary white people, not just bigots, but just everybody, to call Pullman porters to their face, George. Not knowing their name, you would say, George. All of them were George. And this was not, you know, during the Tyler administration. Were there trains then? Yes. It's not during the Tyler administration. This is like 10 minutes ago. This is an episode of what is actually my favorite old radio show, The Great Gildersleeve, on one very early episode in 1941. Listen to sweet teenaged girl Judy Garlandish Marjorie and how she is depicted casually calling a Pullman porter. You better ask the porter, Marjorie. Oh, all right. Oh, George! Uh, Marjorie, never call a porter George. That's the sign of an inexperienced traveler. Watch me. Uh, porter? Yes, sir? Uh, what's your name, porter? It's George, sir. It's George. <laughs> uh, George, how soon do we arrive in Oakland? Now, notice, even in 1941, it's falling out of usage, and so the show calls Marjorie on it. But still, you can see that that was a perfectly ordinary thing to do. So, yeah, these these terms are dehumanizing. But, you know, to tell you the truth, given the history of race in this country, I can't say that I mind Karen at this point. We're talking about a pendulum swing. And, you know, one day I think we can say that Karen is too mean, but I'm not sure that 
that's exactly this day. I think that given all that has gone on at this point, I think we could call Karen a gentle slur that is a matter of getting back at what has been centuries of abuse. Now, of course, one does not wish to take things like this too far. There's a difference between punching down and punching up. Karen is punching up. Punching up doesn't mean that physical abuse is tolerable. Punching up does not mean that anything that a black person says or does must simply be accepted upon the pain of their being called a racist. I don't mean that at all. But to refer to this entitled middle-aged white woman with the strange haircut as Karen is not the most harmful thing, given that, let's face it, white people do have more of the chips in our society than black people do. And you know, there are those who say, I'm going to address this just this one time on this very special episode. There are those who say, I get this feedback occasionally, that I subtly play to the left on this show. And it's, it's true. I, I do a little. There are people out there who think of me as a conservative, Republican, fire-breathing right-winger. I guess I'm playing to the left and even using that adjective fire-breathing. But no, I am, as I've often said, a cranky liberal. But you know you should know. In the next year and a half, you're going to see two books from me, those of you who think that I play to the left. One of them is about cursing, and that's going to be the funny one. But the other book that I'm writing will make anybody left of center's toes curl. So for those conservatives among you who listen to this show, you will see that I understand all sides of the political spectrum. That said, Karen is just a game. And I think it's an okay one in our times. There has to be room for settling scores to an extent. As long as somebody at some point allows that the scores have been settled, that can be a problem, definitely. But I can say that with Karen, we're not there yet. That is what I think, for whatever it's worth, of the Karen business. Well, you know, this sure has been a fun show. And so to play it out, let's use some music that I think of as just fun. This is Horace Silver. This is some of my favorite jazz. This is one of his later albums. He did two or three in the early 90s that are kind of weird and wonderful. This is from Pencil Pack and Papa, and this is Red Beans and Rice. The words are kind of lame and in a good way. I don't know why, but this song has always been an earworm. I recommend listening to the whole thing. You know, once it goes from the head into the improvisation, there's a lot of fun. It's very written, but it's also just very good music. This is Red Beans and Rice. When Satch went out to die On fish, chicken and wine His meat wasn't refined Red beans and rice, they're very nice, eat all the twice. Some reeds and collard greens. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. My daughters and I, we've been lining up cans of different flavors of bubbly brand seltzer 
You know that brand Bubbly, B-U-B-L-Y? Bubbly seltzer on the mantelpiece. Yes, I have a mantelpiece. Some of the most beautiful cans I've ever seen. We're, we're lining them up. I recommend that if you want to get yourself out of the COVID mood. Line up Bubbly seltzer cans on your mantelpiece. We'll talk about that next time. Anyway, Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. Thank you.